I think that if you are the kind of person who is very comfortable spending time on your own and doesn't feel the need to fill your spare time with lots of socialising, then actually that will lead to quite dramatic savings over the long run. You will also have greater time to think about what really makes you happy and what really brings you fulfilment. And if you spend any time thinking about that, you'll very quickly reach the realisation that most things that make you happy cost very little, if nothing. I think that's one of the most important things that we can really get to grips with when it comes to our personal finances. I think there's this assumption that it's all about the numbers, it's all about understanding how financial products work. And I don't doubt that that's not important, but I do think that we very often skip over that hard work that we have to do in understanding how our attitudes to money came about and what our psychology is around money. Welcome to another season of Alonement, the podcast about the time you spend alone and why it matters. I'm your host, Francesca Spector, author of Alonement, How to Be Alone and Absolutely Own It, and a former extreme extrovert who, a few years ago, discovered the life-changing power of taking some time to myself. On this show, I interview fascinating people who can give inspiration and practical advice on how to make your alone time the best it can be. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. As the cost of living crisis continues, this week's guest is someone we could all do from hearing from. Iona Bain is a personal finance expert who appears regularly on BBC Morning Live and writes a weekly column for the iPaper. She's written two books, most recently, Own It, A Millennial Guide to Investing. On a personal level, she's also recently made the big step of buying her first flat as a solo buyer a process she describes to me in an email as a learning curve. Today, we'll specifically be discussing questions around solo finance, including the cost of living alone and the dreaded single supplement, which, as many of you will know, is the additional cost often associated with doing things alone, from getting a hotel room to buying food in the supermarket. Well, typically this show is a free-flowing conversation. I know that so many of you had specific questions you wanted me to ask Iona. So in the second half of this episode, I'll be bringing out some crowdsourced audience questions. This is actually a first for Alonement, so I'm quite looking forward to seeing how it goes. Before we get to the episode, I want to give a big shout out to this season's sponsor, Flashpack a travel company for solo travellers in their 30s and 40s, providing boutique group adventures all around the world. There's trips to Bali, Morocco, Sri Lanka, Japan. The world is your oyster. I've been working with Flashpack since the beginning of this year. And last April, I had the chance to experience one of their adventures for myself, travelling the hotspots of Colombia. I made so many new friends, many of whom I'm still in touch with, and had the kind of colourful, memorable experiences I'd been craving for the past couple of years of lockdown, including salsa dancing, boat trips, and eating delicious South American cuisine. What's incredible about going away with Flashpack is that you get the best of both worlds. Wonderful company, if you'd like it, and the ease of having someone else sort out the logistics, but also the independence of choosing where and when you'd like to have an adventure. If you'd like to experience a flashback holiday for yourself, they've provided an exclusive discount offer to all Alonement listeners. 
Quote the code ALONEMENT to give you £100 off your dream trip today. Iona, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so delighted to have you on the show. It's great to be joining you, Francesca. Thanks for having me. The first question that I ask every guest, I would love to know what the word alone means to you. Well, for me, being alone means peace, freedom, and increasingly creativity as well. I find that being on my own gives me the chance to really think and create in a way that wasn't possible when I was living with someone else. So yeah, peace, freedom and creativity. Oh, you know what? I think I'm going to be so interested to hear how you bring those concepts into finance as well, because I think there's all sorts of ways that we can bring that into our personal finances Mm. as a solo person. Just to uh, give a little bit of background to you and your career, I believe that your first career a decade ago now was actually as a musician. How did you decide to pivot to writing about personal finance? Yeah, it's quite an unconventional career shift. I trained as a musician from a very young age. I got to a very high standard by the time I left school. So my main instruments were cello and piano. I went to a state-funded music school that allowed me to get to this incredibly high standard. That was extremely character building and it taught me an awful lot. I was convinced I was going to be a musician really for the first 20 odd years of my life. When I left university, I went and pursued music as a career, but I went down the pop route. So I moved away from classical music and started writing my own songs, performing with bands, gigging an awful lot, and then also making a living by being a music journalist. So doing reviews for newspapers and writing features as well on culture. I did that for a few years, but it was really difficult to get to a point where I could support myself, where I could be financially independent, where I could live on my own. So I had to move back home with my parents. The work dried up and there was a period of time where I felt very worried about the future and thought that I was never going to be financially independent. And this was just a few years after the financial crash in 2008. Generally speaking, my whole peer group were wracked with this kind of anxiety about the future as well. I realized that actually nobody was going to teach me about the ins and outs of money. Nobody was going to sit me down necessarily and tell me absolutely everything I needed to know in order to get to grips with money. I had to teach myself. That realization alongside the fact that my career as a musician had faltered that led to me starting Young Money Blog in 2011, which was the first personal finance blog by a young person for young people in the UK. And then the rest is history. I think that's incredible. And I think it's that feeling of absurdity when there's something that you desperately need yourself and you look around and you can't find it. That's when you know you need to start something. Yeah. And you have to give yourself permission to do it as well, because nobody else will tell you that you're the right person for the job. And at the beginning, when, you know, I was talking about this with my parents, it really was them who nudged me into starting the blog, partly because I was moping around at home with nothing to do, basically unemployed and feeling quite depressed, really. I think they felt that I needed something to channel all my energy and effort into. Mm. And so they suggested a blog on this whole subject because they knew I was actually quite obsessed with it. I was always talking about, you know, my finances, my friends and how they were thinking and feeling about money. And so they realized I was actually becoming so interested in the issue. I should probably blog about it but it's quite a leap to go from that to then actually setting up the website doing the research and then putting your work out there for all to judge and critique and it took me a while to get to that point where I felt well actually firstly I've got nothing to lose from writing this blog because I've got nothing else 
happening in my life. What's the worst that could happen? You know, maybe somebody sends me an email saying they don't think my blog's any good. Well, so what? It's not the end of the world. But also actually, just because you don't know that much about money to begin with, maybe that doesn't necessarily make you unqualified or uncredible in terms of writing a blog. Maybe that actually makes you the best person for the job because you're coming at it from a fresh perspective. You're talking about it from that young person's point of view and you're questioning things that maybe people who have had lots of experience in this field wouldn't question. There's a lot of value in that. So once I realized that, then I was able to kind of bite on the bullet and actually go for it. Mm. That's what makes your work stand out so much. I mean, I was saying just before we got onto this recording, I was reading your book, Own It, last night. And it's the only personal finance content that's actually kept me awake at night because I've been, <laughs> it was actually, you know, it was waking me up to all these yeah. things that previously had just gone over my head because mm. I think that there is this tendency when you know a lot about a subject, especially something like finance, it's difficult to communicate it, I think. And I think yeah. for yourself, you know, coming from a background where you weren't working in finance, you weren't writing about finance, you were exploring it for yourself and actually being able to access it and having those two perspectives. I think that's what makes your work so enriching. And, you know, it's, it's written in such a great, accessible way. It's funny. It's vibrant. I, I just I love it. And I love seeing finance communicated in that way. I think I've been looking for work like yours for such a long time. And I think that, you know, so many people listening to this episode will be, again, just trying to find the access points. But before we go into your brilliant advice around solo finances, there was also a brilliant story about a piggy bank in that book. So I just I thought I'd love to hear that story uh, in your own words, just to sort of illustrate uh, the, the journey that you've, you've come on in terms of personal finance. Yeah, so this was one of the big trigger points for me when it came to shifting away from music and into personal finance. When I was gigging in Manchester, I used to play piano at a bar that was, I later found out, run by gangsters. So I got paid cash in hand, which probably had been a clue. But it was a very nice gig to have. The singer who I accompanied was a lovely girl who I still stay in touch with called Cheryl. And we did these gigs, I got paid cash in hand, and I used to take that cash and put it in a piggy bank. And I kept this piggy bank in my bedroom at my parents' house in Edinburgh, because I thought that that was the smart thing to do. And it was basically my spending money. I tried to be very careful with that money and I tried not to spend it too quickly. So yeah, I thought I was adulting. And then I came home from one of these gigs one night because my parents had come to watch me. We all came back. We got in the house and I went up to my bedroom and I realised the place had been burgled. And of course, the piggy bank was gone because the burglars, when they saw that, they must have thought all their Christmases had come at once. And I think I left it on the windowsill as well. So it must have just been such a gift to them. We reported it to the police and then the police came round, took a report from us. And it was just such a surreal moment when the police officer was asking me to provide a description of the piggy bank and I had to tell him what it looked like, you know, whether it had a squiggly tail or I think it might have even had sunglasses on. You know, it was, it was <laughs> ridiculous. And I just thought, I am a grown-ass 23-year-old woman who really should be managing her money more effectively than this. Now, don't get me wrong, the burglary wasn't my fault. It didn't deserve to happen to us. And in all seriousness, it's it's horrible being burgled. If anyone's been through it, it's just such an, an immense violation, the idea of strangers going through your stuff in that way. And also, I think it was about 500 quid or something like that, that that they stole, which is an awful lot of money when you're in your early 20s. That That is potentially weeks, if not more than a month's worth of spending. You know, it's it's a lot of money. That was a real turning point for me where, where I thought, well, where could I have been putting that money so that it was safe, 
so that burglars couldn't get their hands on it. And that's when I started looking much more into personal finance. And as I say in the book, yes, I could have put it in the bank and that would have meant at least it was safe in theory. But then I found out about this thing called inflation, which now we know all about because it's it's right at the top of the news agenda. But actually, you know, for, for many years, because inflation was not that big, was not that um, was not that uh, big, a, big a problem. You know, it was this sort of abstract economic concept that people didn't really understand. But once I realized that actually it, it sort of steals your money in another way, that actually that's why you need to invest. Uh, because that way, you know, you can not only preserve your money that you work really hard for, but you can grow it over the long run as well. So, yeah, it was that that whole experience. I wouldn't say that I was glad to go through it, but in a way, it, you know, it's one of these things in life that actually, in hindsight, it maybe was a bit of a blessing in disguise. Yeah, it's one of those things that sort of wakes you up and just causes mm. a pivot. But, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that happens. I think anyone listening who's been burgled or, you know, lost finances will really relate to that. Yeah. I, I was sort of laughing as you described the piggy bank, though, because I realized in your background, obviously, this is an audio medium, so people can't see this, but you do have a piggy bank. So I like that it sort of pokes fun at that story. I do. Knows. Yeah. I used to have a bigger one, a proper full on pink piggy bank. But when I moved last year, I accidentally dropped it and it smashed. And I tried not to read too much into that. For a while afterwards, I thought, oh, no, that's a terrible omen. But actually, I'm still here. Everything's fine. <laughs> so <laughs> fingers crossed. Full transparency, though. You know, I am sort of plugging your book here. But honestly, I would not necessarily have understood what you meant about inflation before yeah. reading up over the past couple of days. So again, you know, anyone who is looking to get into investing you know, as a solo person in a couple, whatever, you know, yeah. if you want to understand it a bit better, because only one, only you're the half or whatever understands it as well, because I think that that can sometimes be the case that we delegate to an oh, yes. half. Definitely. It's a brilliant, brilliant access point. I know that we're talking, I believe from your, um, your first home as a solo first time buyer that you purchased last year. I I was quite lucky because I managed to get on the property ladder earlier in my 20s. So I'm not technically a first time buyer in the sense that this isn't the first property that I've bought, but it is certainly the first property I've bought on my own. And it's oh. the first time that I've lived on my own. Well, congratulations. Um, Thank please, you. I'd love to hear more about that process and how you made it happen. I'm a big believer in being totally honest and transparent, particularly in today's housing market and not pretending that you managed to do it entirely on your own. So when it came to the first time that I got on the property ladder, I had a little bit of money handed down by my grandma, which I was very lucky, very grateful for. And my parents were able to support my brother and I with a guarantor mortgage, which basically meant that if we couldn't keep up the mortgage payments, they would step in. So that helped persuade mortgage lenders to look at us, given that we were very young and not very well established in our careers at that point. But my brother and I also agreed to live together and we get on extremely well, but we also, you know, make an effort to get on. We knew that we would both be in the same place, but we had to make a lot of trade-offs. So we moved to this part of London, which is extremely central and very convenient in terms of getting around. But we had to get an ex-local authority property that was in a really bad shape and was technically blighted at the time because there were plans to knock it down. So therefore, that put an, an even greater discount on it than usual. So we decided to go for it and see if we could make it work. And we did. And we lived together for 10 years until last year. And I think it was 
early 2021 when, and it's no coincidence that this happened during lockdown, because I think lockdown gave us all the opportunity to think very deeply about where we wanted to go in our lives. It was one of the few, I think, advantages of that time. But I noticed that there was a property that came up in the same building that was for sale. And I had been saving just in case that happened for quite some time, because I'd always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to move out and that I wasn't going to wait, you know, to meet someone and have a really settled relationship with them before I did that. I was going to do it regardless of whether that happened or not. So when the property came up, you know, I I thought, well, yeah, I think I'm going to go for this. I'm going to make this work. And again, it was very down at heel. It needed a lot of work doing to it. It was very much a doer-upper. So I needed that support from my parents in order to renovate it. Thankfully, very strangely, they really enjoy renovating. They loved renovating their own house when they bought it however many years ago. They helped me out with the renovation of the first flat that we got in our 20s and they helped me out with the renovation of my flat which I'm really grateful for not that we had a huge budget we didn't but because they're both retired I think they just like having that kind of project and they really like sort of helping me out and I'm incredibly grateful for that but yeah it's very important to be honest I don't think I could have done it completely on my own as in without any support whatsoever from my parents I think that would have been a bridge too far for me because this is London and whilst I've done pretty well in my career in recent years. I'm not uber wealthy. And that's the nature of the housing market today. And when you do decide to live on your own as well, you do accept that you are going to pay a premium in certain respects. Almost certainly going to talk about the single supplement, you know, and and how you navigate that. But I decided to make those trade-offs because I'm the kind of person that can do very well on my own. I'm naturally quite introverted. I think reading Susan Cain's book, Quiet, a few years ago was a bit of a revelation for me. I've completely related to all her insights around, you know, needing time on your own in order to rest and recuperate. I don't get energy from spending time with other people. I love spending time with other people, but it drains me and I have to go away and really recharge my batteries. So that combined with the fact that I work from home and I really needed extra space. I really needed my own office. I really needed space for my clothes. I know that sounds trivial, but if you're a woman, you know, and especially if you're a woman doing the kind of job that I do, then actually being able to have enough space for your clothes is is really important for your job and it helps you plan it more effectively. You just, you cannot manage in, in a tiny little bedroom going into your 30s or 40s. I just didn't want that for myself. So there were lots of reasons why it was the right decision for me. I was really grateful to my parents for supporting me in that because again, they could have maybe said to me, well, wait until you meet a nice man. And they never said that to me. They always very much encouraged me to to go my own way and pursue my goals regardless. Thank you so much for your honesty in so many ways in being very transparent about the support that you had, talking about how you made it happen. Uh, And also, I think the candidness around having a partner and meeting a partner and, you know, that making, you know, one's dreams come true. And I think that, you know, the traditional thing was, you know, my my mother moved straight from her parents' house to in with my dad. And, Mm. you know, that's, that's the way that a lot of generations have had it. And yeah. even now, I think the more traditionally conventionally minded might think, okay, that, you know, that's how they want that ownership to look. And it's so wonderful hearing, I suppose, also about you as a person and how there was a value in and of itself living alone because it suits your personality and it's something yeah. that you really wanted to do because that is a dream for so many as well. It might not be the traditional dream, mm. but it's the dream of, I suppose, our generation onwards, really, to have that independence particularly as a female yeah and I recall reading A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf when I was a teenager and it made a massive impression on me 
I found myself harboring from that moment on a little ambition in the back of my mind to at least for a period of time live on my own and experience what that was like because in her book she presents such a compelling argument that having that opportunity to have your own space it doesn't have to be huge but to just have a little bit of space that you can call your own that's the the engine of of creativity and productivity and gives you that space to think and I really wanted that for myself now don't get me wrong I was extremely fortunate to live with my brother who who I have a fabulous relationship with we got on incredibly well and I'm not saying I didn't have space but also I had to do all my work because I'm self-employed as well I had to do for the best part of 10 years most of my work from home in my bedroom or in my living room when my brother wasn't around and there weren't any distractions and after a while you know that that can take its toll that lack of separation in your life and also I think that fundamentally people want to feel like they're evolving and progressing and moving on and that's why what's happening with our housing market at the moment is a travesty it's a travesty because regardless of whether you want to get married or you don't want to get married whether you want to have children or you don't want to have children it's entirely natural and normal for young people to want to move on and and have greater space for for them to, to grow in and so for me I think that 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 was really fundamental to me moving on in my career and also evolving personally and and creatively I just feel like everybody should, should get the chance to do that and not not be demonized either for it. I think we're we're moving towards this rather sinister trend of almost um, stigmatizing people who choose to live on their own. This idea that they're being selfish, that they're clogging up the housing system, that they're taking up houses that could be used for, for families, for people who really need housing. To that, I would say I'm not a selfish person. I'm extremely family oriented. I would get on so well with my neighbours. I, I do. I like to think I do quite a lot for them as well, helping out my neighbour with a problem with the council at the moment, for instance. And I'm very rooted within the community. I've got lots of friends and so on. So I'm not a selfish, individualistic person at all, I don't think. But also the wider problems with the housing market, that's not on me to sort out. <laughs> if, if the housing market is failing then it goes way beyond these individuals who are deciding it's right for them to live on their own. And I would say it's far better for me to live on my own and be a a functional person who pays my taxes, is a fairly light user of public services, who is quite a responsible, productive citizen always round. It's far better if, if living on my own really facilitates that as opposed to being in a relationship with somebody for the sake of it and being really unhappy and having maybe quite a dysfunctional life as a result of that. You know, I, I think I know which situation is preferable, not just for me, but for, for everyone around me as well. Mm, absolutely. I mean, you know, two things emanating from that. I think, you know, first and foremost, I think we see these things sometimes as such extremes. If you're someone who lives alone, you know, particularly a woman who lives alone, mm. sometimes you can be, there's that idea that, oh, that is that something you always want to do? Is that something that, you know, is you've made as a sort of character defining uh, rest of your life decision? And you quite correctly specified, it can sometimes just be for a period of time. It's yeah. that it can be a really special period of time in your life. And I know that, you know, I also live alone. I know it's something that I will take forward into, uh, you know, if and when I have future relationships where we're living together, yeah. I will want that, that room of my own, that little bit of space, maybe that little bit of mental space. And I think it's a wonderful privilege to be able to carry into the rest of your life that you can't necessarily put a price on, actually. No. And, and also, I mean, to get a little bit personal here, I think that actually living on my own has also really changed my approach 
to relationships, particularly romantic relationships, because now I have a space that I really value, that I really regard as my sanctuary. I'm extremely selective about who gets to be within that sanctuary. And and actually now when, when I approach dating, when I approach relationships, you know, I, I want to meet somebody who I feel is 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 worthy of that sanctuary and i know that sounds like i'm i'm setting a very high bar there but actually i think very often women will get into a pattern of feeling like they have to they have to settle that they have to accept the next the next bloke that comes along and that really that's their only choice and I, and i don't think that's the case and i think that that is very often a recipe for disaster whereas yeah now i feel able to approach my relationships and my romantic relationships with this attitude of, well, I'm choosing to do this and I, I'll choose to be with someone. And if I think that they're respectful enough and if I think that they can handle it as well, they can handle the fact that it, they're with a woman who has her own financial independence. If they're all good with that, then absolutely they can come into my sanctuary. But otherwise, you know, I'm going to set the bar pretty high. I'm not going to let someone into my life who I don't think is going to respect me in that way. And completely justified, you know, as as you should be. And I, you know, I hope that people listening to this are empowered by that because I don't know, I think there's something very sinister about the fact we are almost incentivized to, if we, you know, we've been dating someone for six months to move in together very yeah. early on out of fear, mm. out of the way that society is set up. It is so hard to, to buy alone to rent alone or to you know have to make the decision to then stay on with housemates if you are in a relationship and you can sort of see it moving that way but Mm. I don't know would you say that there is maybe almost a longer term benefit sometimes to waiting to move in with someone to you know maybe then you know actually saving up for those couple of years longer or pursuing the solo living dream even rather than looking for the easy route out I approach this from the perspective of really valuing independence in all forms and that bringing that independence into relationships is a good idea and that really the skill that you need, I think, to successfully you know, maintain modern relationships is to know just how much independence to hold on to and obviously then how much to give over to, to that other person, how much to let them into your life, to let yourself into their life. So it's about mastering that interdependence. And I think the problem now is with our housing market, we are not giving young people, either young men or young women, but I would say particularly young women, opportunity to achieve financial independence so that they can make decisions that are in their own interests that will then lead to them coupling up with people with whom they are compatible, with whom they know they can foster that really deep, rich, long-term relationship. And therefore, that relationship isn't going to break up. That relationship isn't going to lead to broken home or divorce. And that any children that that couple has, you know, are going to grow up in a in a healthy, loving family. I think, generally speaking, that probably is the preference. If, if it can't happen for whatever reason, we shouldn't shame people. That's, I guess, the outcome that politicians, policymakers, those in power w- would love to see because that generally leads to a more stable society. So I think if that's what they want, then not addressing the failures in our housing market is actually making that overall problem much worse because I've definitely seen you know lots of women as you say feeling that this compulsion to couple up really early on to move in with a man who they're not really sure about and who also knows that actually they've got the power and that because that other person's dependent on them for housing 
they can call the shots and they can exert this unhealthy power dynamic within the relationship and that they don't have to treat that other person as an equal. And that's not good. And I think that can lead to relationship breakdown in the long run. So, yeah, I feel that not everybody will be able to achieve that financial independence. And if you can't do that, then you shouldn't feel guilty. It's not your fault. You know, it's not your your failure. And actually, paradoxically, in order for me to achieve my financial independence, I needed to have a supportive, loving family. I needed to have parents who were 100% behind that. If you've not got that, I think it can be very challenging. Mm. At this point, I'd love to give a shout out to this episode's sponsor, Duolingo, the world's number one language learning app, which offers 100 courses across 41 languages. As my Instagram followers will know, I swapped my dating app habit for learning Spanish via Duolingo earlier this year. It's been so easy to fit around my day-to-day life. And six months in, I'm hooked on doing the fun, bite-sized lessons for just a few minutes a day. I love chatting to locals during my travels to Spanish-speaking countries, as well as continuing this enriching adult education journey daily here in London. The main Duolingo app is free and always will be, as the company mission is to make language learning available to everyone. However, if you'd like to try the ad-free version, Duolingo Plus, with lots of special extra features, then quote the promo code ALONEMENT for a complimentary one-month trial. Download the world's number one language learning app today. But I think sometimes even just putting those values side by side, you know, I think that the value that society tells us that we should uphold is coupling up Mm. in and of itself. So I think even to have that as a value, whether or not it's achievable, but financial independence there. Because, you know, presumably um, divorce is expensive. Having a miscommunication around finances in a relationship that's breaking down, that's expensive. Hard to put a figure on, but it can have a longer term ramification on your finances. Absolutely. And it feels like I've spent a lot of my career studying just how expensive it can be to get into the wrong relationship with the wrong man, basically. Mm -hmm. And there was an article in The Guardian a few years ago that said the biggest financial mistake you can make, the headline on it was something like the biggest financial mistake that you can make is, is meeting the wrong guy. Actually, that sounds quite stark and brutal and sensationalist. But it's not wrong. I've spent a lot of time studying the financial fallout from divorce, particularly when it comes to pensions. I mean, it's absolutely shocking how much lower a woman's pension pot is if she is divorced compared to a man's pension pot. And it is because, especially women, I think, from from previous generations, when they coupled up, when they got married, there was this assumption that they could rely on their male partner, particularly if they had to take time out of work to look after children or elderly relatives. Because we know that the gender pay gap is actually the motherhood pay gap. Women and men are pretty much on level pegging right up to the point where you have children and then women take that time out of the workplace. And not only do their career prospects suffer, their salary suffers, but their pension suffers because their pension is extremely closely tied to their wage. And even if they you know, know all the little tips and tricks like you have to be claiming child benefit in order to get your full national insurance contribution record to get your full state pension, you have to know that. And if you don't know that, you miss out. It's these little things that kind of disadvantage women along the way. And if they have a partner who understands this, that supports this, that's willing to really play fair, 
then, you know, it's not necessarily a problem. But if they don't have a partner who's like that or the relationship breaks down at a later point, then it can be absolutely catastrophic for that woman because she's left high and dry with no real financial independence of her own at that point in her life where it's very difficult to just get back out there in, in the jobs market. You know, women in their, their 50s and 60s find that they are, I wouldn't say that they're unemployable because things are getting better, but it's far harder for them to find jobs than anybody else really. I think the younger generations now maybe have that understanding of those issues and maybe think, well, actually, it's far better that I build up some financial independence of my own before I get into any relationship. Or, and whilst I am in a relationship, because whilst we all want to get into relationships with good faith, believing that they will work out in the long run, we have to be prepared for the possibility that they won't. Thank you. And it's so useful to look at it from that longer term perspective I had a previous podcast guest Nell Frizzell who used the term panic years around yes. you know your late 20s uh, early 30s and it's very useful to look at it outside of the panic years timeline I also was really curious to ask and this it might seem like quite a broad question but this podcast is all about alone time and mm. I think that even you know looking back at weeks where I've had a couple more nights in I you know haven't overspent on socializing going out obviously the cost of living is a lot higher at the moment restaurant costs are much higher holidays are much more expensive to what extent is being able to spend time alone comfortable in your own company useful from a personal finance perspective that's a great question because i think we do get very hung up on the premium that you pay as a single person perhaps the most notable example is just how much more expensive it is to book a hotel room on your own you can't share that cost with someone else going food shopping is hard because most meal options are providing for more than one person and so on there are many examples but actually i think that if you are the kind of person who is very comfortable spending time on your own and doesn't feel the need to fill your spare time with lots of socializing then actually that will lead to quite dramatic savings over the long run. You will also have greater time to think about what really makes you happy and what really brings you fulfillment. And if you spend any time thinking about that, you'll very quickly re reach the realisation that most things that make you happy cost very little, if nothing. Um, and so I think that's one of the most important things that we can really get to grips with when it comes to our personal finances. I think there's this assumption that it's all about the numbers. It's all about understanding how financial products work. And I don't doubt that that's not important, but I do think that we very often skip over that hard work that we have to do in understanding how our attitudes to money came about and what our psychology is around money. And I feel like I've done a lot of hard work in that area in recent years, and therefore I'm able to understand what really brings me happiness and that a lot of the things that we feel compelled to spend money on really don't bring us happiness. I'm not saying that you can't reach that conclusion if you don't live on your own. It really is about just being able to have some time to think about these issues more deeply. I just find that for me, living on my own has been extremely conducive to me reaching those deeper, more profound realizations. Mm. I mean, it comes into anything that you do solo. I saw, yeah. I saw a really interesting post, I think from the Financial Diet Instagram account a few weeks ago, where they talked about solo travel and actually how 
you might save just by virtue of the fact that you don't feel like you need to, for instance, you know, hypothetically, your friends want to go on lots of nights out somewhere and like big cost for that. And it's lots of alcohol and they want to get a table or something. And that's just yeah. not where, you know, as you say, that you want to mindfully put your resource and the, being able to almost have the decisive vote on what you do. <laughs> yeah. You save on the things that you don't want to do, I suppose, but you do, you are able to spend, this isn't about sitting in every night eating baked beans, I suppose. No. But it's, it's about being able to spend on the things that you want. Yeah, I decided a long time ago that I was no longer going to go on holidays with other people where I didn't really have a say in, in what we did and where we went. I think that's a rite of passage that you go through as a young person. Basically, you make a lot of trade-offs and you compromise an awful lot because you want to fit in. You want to be part of a tribe. Also, when you're at that early stage in your life, and you haven't got many resources of your own. It's about survival. You know, you want to build up as many connections and build up that network as much as you can do and feel that security of being around other people. So you're prepared to go along with a lot of stuff that you don't want to do. But then as you get older, I think the skill in growing up is understanding at what point you can say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. That's not really in my interest. And it's not something that I enjoy doing. And if somebody else isn't prepared to meet me halfway well so be it you know that's the kind of person they are if they want to live that way then go for it but I'm going to do my own thing I'm realizing how you can do that without being a hermit <laughs> that's the big skill in growing up I think thank you for sharing that because I mean the thing that springs to my mind is when you get an invite to a friend of a friend's hem party for instance mm. uh, you know mm. it's a big group holiday and it base level it's like 400 pounds or something to like go somewhere you wouldn't necessarily choose to go with a group of people you don't really know and it turns out half the budget went on penis straws yes. and, <laughs> and you kind of think oh dear lord and actually this does move us straight into the audience questions because the first one I had through on Instagram was how during wedding season do you avoid the huge cost of, of mm. things like hen parties and you know and also the single supplement when it comes to weddings for instance you know having to pay for a hotel room alone but yeah I just I'd be really interested to hear about the boundaries you might advise someone to have around the sort of hen party slash stag do and wedding combo and and, and the finances that are involved in yeah this, this is a really tricky one because when you're talking about hen do's and weddings you find yourself, you know, moving outside the realm of kind of pure financial advice and much more into the terrain of advice around relationships and how you manage your social life. And within that are lots of tricky questions about, you know, how you can be diplomatic, but also maintain your personal boundaries. But actually, I think this gets to the heart of personal finance. And, and what makes it so fascinating for me is that it's not in a vacuum. You know, we don't just deal with our personal finances in the abstract. They're not just about getting the best interest rate on our savings or finding the best mortgage deal. They are actually about those very difficult dilemmas that we have in our lives around how we manage our relationships, how we manage to perhaps stick up for ourselves without alienating other people. That's very, very difficult. And, and I've had experience of that myself. And so I, I absolutely um, relate to anybody out there that's grappling with this at the moment as we get into wedding season. What I would say is it's absolutely fine for you to identify your kind of your core network of people in your life that you really deeply care about and cherish and for whom you are prepared to invest that money, for whom you are prepared to go above and beyond, for whom you're prepared to maybe give up a weekend 
of your life, which you know you won't get back, where you know that you're not going to maybe be on board with absolutely everything, but you're going to buy into it all and you're going to make that decision good. Once you have invested the money, you are not going to feel bad about it. You are going to, you know, make the best of it and realize that it's not all about you. It's, it's about your friend who you care about really deeply. It's about identifying who those people are in your life versus others who may be kind of enlisting you really to fill up the numbers, to be honest with you. I think we all know people who are like that, if we're being real for a moment. They want to have the biggest wedding possible, so they've invited you, even though you haven't seen them for years, and you didn't really even get on with them in the first place. But whatever, you're going along there because you feel like you've got no choice. I would say, unless you have the money and you do want to go, and there'll be lots of people there who who you'd love to see again, it's absolutely fine to say no. And I just think maybe we don't realise that that's an option sometimes, or that if we say no, then that is an absolute appalling faux pas. I guess the skill is just knowing how to say no in a way that's not blunt and offensive. And I find sometimes an elegant white lie might do the trick here. So to say I have something else on that day or whatever it might be, but it's absolutely fine to say no. And I think that is, that's just a kind of muscle that we have to keep exercising as we go through our twenties and thirties. Otherwise we would say yes to everything. And I think women in particular would say yes to everything. We'd end up with absolutely no money left for anything that we want to do. That's just not an option for me personally. Mm, mm, absolutely and I think I'm normally not a fan of lying because no me neither largely largely because I'm just not very good at it but (laughs) I do think it's one of those situations where as you so beautifully put it an elegant white lie Mm -hmm. I think I think it's where they come into their own somehow because yes there's so much around weddings and around this and that. And especially because also they're planned a year in advance. What what yeah. single person in their right mind has planned what they're doing on a Sunday in one year's time? Yeah. And also we could talk about this for a whole other episode, <laughs> the cost of weddings today, just how frankly ridiculous the wedding industry has become and the pressure that this puts on couples and not just couples, but all their friends and family to spend huge amounts of money on one day always comes with this incredible pressure for everybody to have an absolutely amazing time, which can lead to all kinds of problems, not least that lots of people end up getting really, really drunk, especially single people at these events, because they feel like that's the only way that they can kind of overcome the awkwardness of being sat next to people that they don't know very well, and so on. So therefore, they hit the bottle. uh, But that very often makes things worse. So it's a a really challenging thing for for single people to navigate. But but I also think that, you know, kudos to the couples out there who recognise this and actually realise that they don't have to have that kind of day to celebrate their love for one another, and to have a lovely time with their friends and family. You know, and it is always the more modest weddings where I have the best time. I can say that with absolute confidence. Those weddings where the couple haven't spent £25,000 on lots of extra little things that they think they have to have to make their day amazing. Guests don't notice that stuff. They just want to go, they want to have a nice ceremony, they want to have a decent meal afterwards, and then they want to boogie, and that's it. You know, you really don't have to have the most special, beautiful, wonderful, amazing bouquet of flowers in the world when you walk down the aisle. So couples that recognize that and do that I think they're amazing and we should celebrate them because I think they've got the right idea obviously you know weddings come in all sorts of shapes and sizes some people you know for some people that is a dream but equally quite likely you're empowering a lot of people in couples listening to this and actually struggling with that quandary themselves because I think there is that notion probably from one side that you have to keep up with the Joneses and actually hearing that you don't have to and that people might still actually have a good time (laughs) yeah you don't spend your sort of life savings on a wedding uh you know i think that's it's liberating it's great 
Yeah. And if you go to a wedding that's like that, where people have made those decisions not to kind of have the full Monty and all the bells and whistles, tell them that you really appreciate that and that you um, that you've had a lovely time and that you've really enjoyed it and you don't feel that you've missed out on anything because that couple probably will be thinking to themselves, oh, my goodness, are people going to judge me for having done this? Are people think thinking I'm stingy for having picked this option instead of that option? But if you kind of validate their decisions, they'll feel relieved. Mm, mm, thank you for saying that. Wow. It's, it seems like as we're talking, there's so much emotion around finances. You say it's not oh, yeah. in a vacuum. It is. Yeah. It's an emotional thing. And, you know, I think equally it makes it interesting it makes it accessible because the, this is bigger than just money this is not totally. you know this is not a sort of dry totally. um, abstract thing it's about emotional intelligence mm. i'm gonna move on to our next question uh, which is an impossible question so sorry for that but it's also a very important one particularly right now and that is how can one buy a home alone on an average income in today's market with great difficulty in fact, you could make the case that it is impossible if you have not got any support at all. As I said earlier on, it may be a bridge too far. And I just think that we have to be honest about that. What I would say is that it really depends on just how strong that ambition is for you, because if it is really strong, then you will think about what the logical endpoint of that ambition is, which is that you may decide that there are other things in your life that don't matter as much to you and that you are prepared to give those up in order to achieve that ambition. But that is easier said than done because the things that you might have to give up could be really immense sacrifices and they will be much greater sacrifices than previous generations had to make as well and unfair sacrifices I should add these are not things that we should just expect people to give up these are sacrifices that we shouldn't expect people to give up and they could basically amount to sacrificing a good quality of life in order to achieve what should be a perfectly viable ambition so I just want to lay that out right from the get-go I think it's about just trying to use those little hacks along the way to maximize your savings. So one hack is the lifetime ISA. I think this is a no-brainer if you're really committed to getting on the housing ladder. Now, again, you're at a disadvantage if you're doing it on your own, because if you're a part of a couple, you can both get a bonus from the government. You can merge your lifetime ISAs together and use both bonuses to put towards the deposit for your first home. So... Putting that to one side, at least you get one bonus and it's worth 25% on whatever you save. And the maximum you can save per year is £4,000. So we're looking at an extra £1,000 from the government towards your deposit each year. If you do that for six, seven years, we're talking six or £7,000 if you can afford to put the maximum amount in. Now, I'm not going to pretend that that's going to make the difference, but it's just a little booster that you get along the way. And I think it, it's free money. Why would you turn that down? Very often people just don't even know about the lifetime ISA and they're saving for their first home in a regular savings account and they're not getting that extra gram from the government. So my advice is, well, if you're not getting that extra money, just get it. The only two caveats I would say are you need to make sure that you're um, not going to be buying a property that's worth over £450,000 because that's the maximum house price limit. And let's face it, in London South East, you can hit that very quickly. Hopefully the government will review that. I'm putting a bit of pressure on the Treasury to try and review that. 
But also, if you want to withdraw the money from the account, you have to pay a really big penalty, which is not only taking away the bonus from the government, but some of your money too, which I do not advise. So make sure you have savings for emergencies elsewhere and use your lifetime ISA purely for your first home and try not to touch that money because otherwise you'll pay that big penalty. Can you explain for anyone who isn't aware of the lifetime ISA and exactly how that comes into putting that into your deposit for your first home. Can you explain how that works in a nutshell? Yeah, sure. So with the lifetime ISA, you get paid that bonus monthly as you go along. So it's sort of added to the sum of money that you yourself have saved into the account at the end. When you come to uh, purchase the house that you want, then you can then ask your solicitor to withdraw the funds from your lifetime ISA and that can all get approved and then that money can be put directly towards your deposit. Whereas with the help to buy ISA in the past, the bonus that was paid by the government couldn't be accessed until you had exchanged contracts and you had to have paid up your deposit in the meantime, which meant lots of people were going, hang on a second, well, what's the point of getting this bonus from the government if I can't actually put it towards my deposit? Now, the answer is, well, you could put it towards other fees and, um, you know, the costs associated with just moving into the house, which you know, most people have. But all the same, I personally think that if you're going to market a product as helping you get on the housing ladder, then you want the money to go towards your deposit. I think it's got to say what it does on the tin. So I think that's a big improvement on the um, help to buy ISA. I think lifetime ISA is a big improvement on that. Great. And is there anything else? And, you know, you said about making a lot of sacrifices, and I'm sure this goes beyond the infamous uh, avocado toast uh, mm. that, that we're all apparently spending too much money on and, and, and jeopardizing our chances of, uh, of home ownership. But, uh, you know, are there any other specific areas that you, that you can make savings in or that, you know, you from, from early on in your 20s, perhaps you would maybe really look at regulating in order to be able to put towards um, I think, a home eventually? Yeah, I'm a big believer in, in not recommending things to people that I wouldn't myself put into practice. And that means that I would never recommend any money saving strategies that I didn't think were sustainable. I frankly think a lot of money saving strategies that you see out there are just not sustainable. What I would say is that if you can make that decision that you want to save up for a first home or or for whatever, you know, you could have another big goal in your life. But if you have a goal that requires you to save up a lot of money, it's far easier to make that decision fairly early on and then not kind of get into certain habits in the first place, rather than at a later time when maybe you have habits that you feel really kind of keep body and soul together and that are really important for your well-being that are really difficult to cut back on naturally because you've been kind of relying on them for years. So for me, for instance, there are several things in life that I just don't spend money on because I've never spent money on them and I've never been tempted to try them because I think to myself, well, you know, what if I get into a habit of relying on that thing in order to feel confident in order to feel you know like I have well-being and so on I this might sound like a trivial example but for instance anyone who's seen my nails will know they are not (laughs) I do not go to a, a nail technician I do not get manicures I do not get new nails and it's just a part of my life that that I don't prioritize and I've decided that's not something I'm ever going to do because it's a it, it's a cost that I don't have to introduce into my life and I think it's far better to not introduce costs into your life in the first place rather than try to cut back on them at 
at a later stage. So that's all that I would say on that. I'm definitely not going to start talking about how it's helpful to take a packed lunch to work or make your own coffee at home and so on. It's for everyone to look at their own lives and decide what is actually doable and the things that they can actually give up without too much effort and the things that they really cannot give up and the things that will not actually make that much of a difference in the long run. There's one glimmer of hope, one silver lining here, which is that I think post-lockdown, it is more feasible for people to be able to move to parts of the country and move to areas that are cheaper and to work remotely. Of course, then you have to weigh that up with the costs of commuting in for one or two days a week. And it's a big change. You know, you shouldn't underestimate how how much of a transition that can be if you're used to living in a busy city, you know, surrounded by other people to then go and move out to the middle of nowhere. It's a big adjustment. And sometimes I, I, I've known people who've maybe underestimated that adjustment. But all the same, there are capacities there to find cheaper places in the country because that's what's going to make a real difference. I think it's more finding those those cheaper parts of the country rather than you trying to supercharge your savings and your earnings because let's face it you can only borrow four and a half times your earnings anyway so if you're not earning that much to meet the property price that you're aiming for you're just not going to make the sums add up so it might make sense to to think about those cheaper parts of the country but that's a that's a big decision you know and and that's for everyone to decide for themselves and what's your thoughts on friends buying a home together I think it can be a perfectly good idea. Obviously, it depends on you having an extremely robust, strong relationship with your friend. But I would say on the practical side, have a legally binding agreement in place for what would happen if that relationship between you broke down. And it's exactly the same, actually, if you're buying with a partner. What would you do? Would you sell up and split the money? Would one of you stay and buy the other out if that's the case? Have you or the other person got the money and the means to do that? So in theory, you could get a lodger to move in, but there are things to think about there. For instance, if you've bought the property under a shared ownership scheme, you'd have to ask the Housing Association for permission to do that. So there are lots of things to think about. But if you have a legally binding agreement in place, at least you know that just in case something goes wrong, that there are contingencies and then you don't have to go to court, which can be extremely expensive and painful. And do you have any tips on saving when you're a single person? Yeah, it's tough. I would say that savings pots and spaces are a game changer if you want to build up savings quickly and easily. So I don't rely on savings pots and spaces alone. I have other savings accounts too, but then I'm a bit further on in my savings journey. If you're starting out saving, then having a digital first account, having a a bank account on your phone usually means that you can get access to these pots or spaces. So if you have a Monzo, Starling, Revolut account, these typically offer these separate spaces where you can either round up your spending and put the spare change from that spending into those pots. So I'll just explain what how that works. Say you go to a cafe and you spend £2.70 on a drink. Your, your bank will round that up to £3 and put the extra 30p into your savings. That's great. It means you're you're saving as you're spending. But I will add that that's not going to add up very quickly. That's going to take a long time for it to really kind of build up into a meaningful sum. So if possible, add a multiplier to your spending, which means that, for instance, I've got the maximum multiplier on my spending in my account. Um, If I spend £2.70 
they'll round that up to something like five pounds and they'll put the extra money into my savings account. And my bank does it in quite an unpredictable way as well, which keeps me on my toes. Sometimes <laughs> it rounds it up by a huge amount. I go, wow. But it has really built up my savings pot now. And I've got about 600 or 700 pounds in there. And that that's great. That's, that's not just a cushion for me as I go into this winter thinking about the cost of living crisis, but it's also there for me just in case I do really need to go on holiday and I really need to have that break. I've got that money there for me um, instantly. And it's way more chilled out and cheaper and easier than putting it on credit card. Mm. Mm. I think that's great. And I think it's really nice to know that when you do splurge on, you know, a nice coffee somewhere that actually you're saving at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They go but, together. But if you are, like I say, it depends on your goals. You know, if you are saving for your first home, get on the Lifetime ISA. That's a no brainer. And if you, you, you know, if you're looking to really grow your spare cash in the long term, as I've laid out in my book, you've really got to think about investing because generally speaking, history suggests uh, investing will grow your money much more effectively than saving. And you can do roundup investing as well. So Moneybox, for instance, offers that function whereby, yeah, if you spend £2.70, the extra 30p gets invested in stocks and shares. But then over time, you can set up a direct debit. And that's another tip as well. When you get paid, just have a yeah, standing order to put five, ten percent, whatever you can afford of your salary into a savings account. And then that's paying your future self first. That's mm. how I like to think of it. Absolutely. And it takes away the friction of having to go and then remember to put money to yeah. transfer it into your savings. Yeah, it? make it as easy and automatic and, and thoughtless as possible, if you like. Mm. Thank you so much. I'm really glad that we gave this out to uh, to the audience on social media to send in their questions. I think I'm going to try this segment more often because it's really worked out well. And it's really nice to know that so many people are benefiting, you know, directly in some cases for those who submitted questions from your really practical, brilliant finance advice. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I, <laughs> I really hope it's been helpful for people. Thank you. So to bring this back to the final question I ask on every podcast, and of course, to you as an individual, what is your alonement? I think it's spending any time in my sanctuary after a busy period of working. So nowadays, I do a fair bit of travel for my work. I appear quite a lot on the BBC, which means I have to go to Manchester. And I also have to go around the country speaking at events. So when I come back to my flat, I just love that time where I unpack where I tidy up, where I have a bath, where I just feel like I'm settling back in to, to my space. And then I've maybe got a whole evening ahead of me, which is my own. And I don't have to, you know, ask anyone's permission to do anything. I can just choose to spend that however I want. And I mean, it was funny, recently I saw this uh, trend of feral girl summer. <laughs> I thought, actually, when you live on your own, you know, every summer can be feral girl summer, like every every day you can choose to be quite feral. And there are times where I am a little bit feral. But at the same time, you know, there are those other periods where I just feel like this is where I, I, I'm the boss. Like nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can kind of, nobody can have a say here. I'm, I'm the one who gets to decide what I do and, and how I like to have things. And I just, I just love that. I find that so liberating. Thank you, Iona. And this has been a really great episode. I'm sure that so many people are inspired to gain financial independence. I think it's a whole new tangent and something we've never really discussed in much detail before on this show. Thank you for coming on. It's been a great perspective. Thank you. This has been such fun. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Alonement. If you loved this episode, then you know what I would really like you to do is to share it with someone that you think would benefit. 
That's all from me. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode.